I have a couple more studies or sermons that I would like to, to bring out of Second Peter and uh, tonight and next week. And then the following Sunday, we should start back in our study in the book of Revelation. Kind of surprised that y'all don't have your pajamas on. I thought tonight was pajama night here at the church. Or was that just for the kids? Oh, I'm sorry. Some of y'all on Facebook, maybe you do have your pajamas on. Think about that. <clears throat> now, as I said, it, tonight, I, really what I'm going to do, folks, is a, a two-part message, a two-part study. I don't believe we have time to cover everything that needs to be covered in this passage tonight or in this chapter. Uh, so instead of doing one very long study or sermon, I decide, well, I'll break it down into two. So I'm thinking about you. I know that the heart can't comprehend what the backside can't endure, so I don't want you to sit there too long on this. But uh, tonight I want to talk to you about the fact that judgment is coming. Next week I'll talk to you about the fact of how we should live while we wait. Now, you know, uh, there are some things that we legitimately, genuinely forget. Does anybody else ever have that problem? I mean, we forget names, we forget phone numbers, we forget where we put our glasses, uh, where we put our keys, our phones, our coffee cups. I probably got coffee cups scattered all over this county in one place or another. Uh, we forget things like to take the trash out. Or, I hate to admit this, the older I get, I don't know if anybody else will admit to this or not, but I have forgotten a few times where I parked the truck when I come out of the store. Anybody else ever done that? Yeah, so there are some things we legitimately forget. Now, there are other things that we really, we don't forget, but there are things we see and know, but instead of forgetting them, we just choose to ignore them. Anybody else have that problem? I mean, you, you forget to take the trash out, but you know the screen door needs to be fixed. You just had not felt like it. You see it, but you choose to ignore it. We conveniently overlook it. For instance, we uh, don't forget that we're out of shape. I mean, we know we're out of shape. We just choose to ignore it and live as though it's not a reality. Can I get a witness on that? There you go. Now, in these verses, Peter, he's going to highlight two different groups tonight. One group are believers, are Christians, and they need to be reminded of the great and, and, and the wonderful truths of the gospel and the amazing promises of God's Word. Now, believers in Peter's day, they're a lot like us today, folks. They uh, got discouraged. Now, we get discouraged at times. We become disillusioned from time to time, and we forget these truths, and we lose sight of these great promises that God has given to us, that God has made. Now, Peter, what he wants to do with this first group of believers, and remember in 2 Peter, when I started it a few months ago, I realized we'd been in the book of Ezra and finished it last week, but I want you to think back. Peter was writing to a church, a beleaguered, bewildered group of believers. I mean, there were some things that were going, what most people would consider wrong in the church, but actually it was for the purpose of the gospel going out. There were things happening in this church. People were confused. Uh, people had questions. So Peter wrote to them to give them some hope and some assurance. And that's what he's doing tonight. Peter, he wants to stir up this hope and this courage, this strength and purpose in the hearts and minds of these Christians. And he's going to do it by reminding them of these great spiritual truths. Now look at, uh, look at 2 Peter 3. Let's read verses 1 and 2. He says, now, uh, and I'm reading out of the ESV this evening. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them I am stirring 
up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord, of uh, the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he's telling them, I'm writing you these things to remind you of these great truths. Father, tonight as we look at your word, uh, I pray that we would be reminded as well of the great truth that, uh, that uh, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming for a lost world because Jesus is coming for us. And I pray that we would keep that great truth in our heart, on our minds daily uh, in the world in which we're living, and understanding, Father, with the understanding that it's all going to happen according to your appointed time. I pray tonight we would see the encouragement that Peter gave to these folks in his day, and we would have the same encouragement because it's the same word. It's your word. And your word always brings what we need at the moment of need. In Christ's name. Amen. Again, he's going to highlight these two groups. The, the, the fact is, folks, now I'm going to say this before we go any farther. As Christians, if we're going to remain faithful to the end, we need to preach to our heart continually. And what I mean by that is we need to continually be reminded of the promises of God's Word. I talked about it this morning, the importance of staying in God's Word. I talked about it the last three weeks, actually. The importance of staying in God's Word and staying uh, in the presence of God through prayer. Now, Peter addressed the first group, these believers that needed this encouragement, that needed this hope. Now, he also addresses the second group, one who hadn't forgotten the truth, but they have chosen to willfully ignore the truth. It's one thing to be ignorant. Now, there's, and I think all of us are probably ignorant of certain things, right? I mean, I'm ignorant of a lot of things. You, you can ask my wife or the kids. There's a lot of things I'm, I'm ignorant of. But that's okay to be ignorant. That just means you don't know something. It's another thing to know the truth and live, live as if you don't know the truth. To avoid it, to ignore it. Kind of like not being in shape. Well, we don't consider that a reality. It's okay, I'm going to ignore it. Well, this is the group of people, this is the group that Peter's talking about tonight. These false teachers that he's speaking about, like many false teachers today. In Peter's day, they rejected the second coming of Christ. Like a lot of folks do today. Look at verses 3 and 4. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires. I want to encourage you, if you want to highlight your Bible or write in your Bible, underline that line, following their own sinful desires. Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, we know that this was an issue in the early church, and it's kind of starting, I think, to become an issue today. The delayed coming of Christ. It was a great concern for the church. The delay of Christ's coming, His return, was troubling. It was an issue. And the reason I know it's troubling, same reason you should know it's troubling, because it's an issue Paul had to deal with with the church in Thessalonica. He had to talk to them about this. Christ's delay was disheartening because uh, there were many folks, they fully expected to see Christ return in their lifetime. Now add to that the problem, there are things taking place that were somewhat alarming to many people, or at least unnerving to many people, and I want to tell you this before I go on. I believe that many of these things are coming to the church here in America. And one thing that came to the church in Peter's day was they took the hit of persecution. Things got rough. Things got tough. They were suffering personal loss because of their faith. Their lives were different than the rest of society. You see, these Christians were being light in the dark world. Light and darkness. And I think you know this, but darkness does not like 
light because light reveals. So when light comes into darkness, it causes some problems. Let me ask you this. What is something that happens? Have you ever been camping or fishing at night, say in the summer, and you turn that lantern on, you turn that light on? What happens immediately? Bugs. Somebody said bugs. You ever said that? That's exactly what happened with the church. When they're being light in a dark world, they were shining that light, it began to attract bugs. And these stinging bugs of persecution had come. Again, I believe it's on its way for the church here in America. And people started dying at this time. People, whether due to age or sickness or, or being martyred for their faith, they began to die. So people in the church wanted to know what that meant for those who had died and those who would die before Christ returned. So they, they, had, they wondered, did they miss out on the promises of God? Now again, it's an issue Paul dealt with, and you can read about it in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians. I forget what chapter it is. Also, there were those that, that what compounded the situation. There were many people, <coughs> as I said, dying. They were being martyred for their faith. And that was causing some problems with those in the church. Now with the increasing persecution and the deaths of believers, people started asking some of the same questions that I have heard people ask today. Questions like this. Jesus, where are you? Why are you taking so long? Don't you know what's happening here? Don't you care? When are you going to come back and set things right? I've heard those questions asked for several months now from many different people. So they started to have fears. They started to have doubts. They maybe even asked the question, well, is it even worth living out my faith if this is what's going to happen? So the false teachers in Peter's day, just like false teachers in our day, just like all false teachers in any day, they took advantage of people's fear. They took advantage of people's doubts and questions. And they began to say things along these lines. Well, Jesus hadn't come back yet because He's not coming back because the promise is not true. And then they said things like, well, since He hadn't come back and isn't coming back and the promises are not true, why are you living like you are? You can live any way that you want to. And if He isn't coming back, then listen, if Jesus is not going to come back, then you're not accountable to Him for anything. I want you to listen to me, church. People deny the consummation, the ultimate end of all things, for the same reason they deny the creation of all things. And you know why that is? Because by denying the consummation of all things and the creation of all things, in one way or another, it removes God from the equation. It removes God and it rids their system and their ideology, their way of thinking, from God. How many of you know the name Aldous Huxley? He died back in the 60s, Jeff does. Now, Aldous Huxley was a very renowned and devout atheist. He was a philosopher. Of course, he was an a, a atheistic philosophy. He was a philosopher. He's also a writer. He published about 50 books. But he was a, a great uh, speaker for atheists, for the atheistic move. He wrote a document, and I want you to listen to the words of this. It was called Confessions of a Professional Atheist. And he said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning, consequently assumed it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove there is no valid reason why he personally should not do exactly as he wants. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, 
The philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation was desired, uh, we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. He's talking about Christianity. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedoms. Now you talk about, uh, this guy's an atheist, diehard atheist. Uh, he, he's probably a believer now, but it's too late since he's dead. He's probably realized he was wrong his whole life. But you talk about honesty and openness. I mean, just from that right there, uh, whether he knew it or not, he laid bare his soul. He showed the depravity of his heart. And i got to tell you, that's something sad to say that many professing Christians are not willing to do. But he did. Peter tells us, look at verse 3, that that was the very motive behind the false teaching that denied the second coming of Christ. They, were, they wanted to deny it so they could follow their own sinful desires. They rejected the teaching. They scoffed. They mocked at the teaching. They made light of something that was important and serious. Like many people today, they don't want to hear that judgment is coming. They don't want to hear that Jesus is coming. Why? Because they don't want to be accountable to anybody but the self. One of their arguments against Christ's coming that Peter had to deal with was the apparent unchanged chain of events that has happened since the beginning. Look at verse 4. They said, since the fathers, talking about those of Old Testament time, fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Their reasoning, which we're going to see in just a minute, was completely false and faulty, was there's no evidence of God ever breaking into human history or intervening in a drastic way. Well, we know that's wrong. Jesus, uh, they said Jesus is not coming back. He's not going disturb to like, disturb things like you say because God has never done that before. Things have been rocking along for millennia now and it's not going to change. And what they were doing, let me tell you, that mindset, that, that philosophy is uh, what they're proposing is what some philosophers and some teachers call a closed system. And what do I mean by a closed system? Well, it's a system that has no room for the intervention of God. No room for God to intervene in humanity. Now, it's not that these folks who believe in a closed system are necessarily atheists. At least they're not practicing atheists. There might be a God, but they say God don't care anything about us. God does not intervene. Well, we know that's not wrong. We know that's wrong. Because Peter's going to offer some arguments against that claim. He's going to offer a couple of arguments. He's going to issue a warning, and he's going to issue a challenge. So let's look at verses 5 through 9 as Peter begins to build his arguments. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the first argument that Peter gives, uh, which actually is a twofold argument, is the very argument of creation. Now, they denied this truth, or maybe not necessarily creation, creation, the truth of creation, but they, they deny the implications of it. Okay? Creation is still a hot topic today. 
I mean, why do you think people overlook it, ignore it, or as some do, just outright deny it? Well, I'll say again, remember what Huxley said? If there's a creator who created all there is, then he has the right to intervene and to hold us accountable. And people don't want that. People, they, they, they don't want an, an existence with God. So what they do is deny God's existence. And this is an evolutionary way of thinking. Deny God's existence, say everything happened by blind evolutionary chance. Everything just come about by chance. Or they'll say, well, there may have been a creator, there may have been a designer who made this world, but he wound it up and then turned it loose and has no interest in it now. That's a deist point of view. That's the view that Peter's dealing with, with these false teachers in the early church. Either way, evolutionist, deist, whatever it is, it takes God out of the picture. And that's what a world wants, a world that's bound with sin. They want God out of the picture. Now as believers, we accept the Word of God. We believe the Word of God. It tells us that in the beginning, before there was anything, there was God. It tells us that anything that is was created by God. Everything is created and had a beginning except for God. He's the beginning of beginnings because He never had a beginning. And we accept all that on faith and we know the Scripture tells us that. Now we realize, I think we all realize, there are compelling arguments outside of Scripture that actually Scripture itself affirms that points to God as a creator. To point to the fact of creation because of a divine being. I'll give you a couple of them real quick, three of them. The cosmological argument. That's an argument from beginning or cause and effect. Okay, it goes like this. The question is, why is there something rather than nothing, and where did that something come from? Because it's not scientifically feasible to believe that matter or energy are, are eternal, and it's not logical or feasible to conclude that something could begin out of nothing. Here's a second argument. It's called the teleological argument. That, that speaks to, that's an argument of design. You look at the beauty, you look at the symmetry, you look at the complexity of the universe, it is simply too great to be handed over to chance. And here's another secular argument. It is uh, the argument of human consciousness. You know, as human beings, our ability to think, to reason, our ability to be introspective, to be contemplative. Now, I'm going to tell you, while those are interesting you know, I'd say compelling arguments and would make interesting study. Peter is not trying to convince these people that God created. They already believed that God created. Peter was trying to show them that God had created and He had already intervened in humanity's history by creation. I know this gets a little deep. Stay with me. Peter said, basically he said, your argument, it can't be true because it's based on the line. God did intervene. He intervened at the very point of creation. God created by divine fit, but by, by simply His Word. By God's Word, this universe exists. He brought something into existence out of nothing. Now folks, the simple fact that God created shows that He has the right and He has the ability to intervene in His creation. He can intervene anytime He wants to, and He has the right in the life of creation to say when it's done, when it's over with. Look at verse 7. Peter references the power of God's Word. He says, but by the same Word. Okay? It was by God's Word that He created. Uh, it's by God's Word that He sustains. Alright? He sustains and He keeps this world in existence until the day of judgment, which is a time appointed that He appointed Himself and nobody else knows. As Peter references creation, I told you it's twofold. He also has another purpose. Look at verse 5. 
He mentioned the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. I want you to do something. Let's, let's go ahead and do this. I don't know how long it's been since you read the first part of Genesis 1, but I want you to mark your place in 2 Peter. Turn over to Genesis chapter 1. I want you to notice something. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said... Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. Each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now did you catch how many times that, turn back to Second Peter, how many times in that passage it says God said, God said. You know what Peter's doing? He is using creation to prove his point, but he's doing more than that. These people were saying, now what God has said is not going to take place. What God has said is not going to happen. Peter said, are you kidding me? By God's word, he created the universe. Now, let me share something else with you. <clears throat> As Peter references creation, there's, there's a couple of purposes. I, I've given you, given you two, but why would Peter point all this out? What he's doing is leading up to another point. A truth the false teachers denied, and it's one that's still denied today. And it's out of the book of Genesis. Chapter 6 through 9 in Genesis, something happens, doesn't it? Something big and something watery. Remember what that was? I know it's been a long time since you're probably in primary Sunday school, but uh, it was big and watery. It was a flood. The flood took place. And after the flood, folks, if forever after, altered earth's creative order. Do you realize that? And all the waters flooded the entire earth and destroyed every family but one family in an act of judgment. The point Peter is making is God's already intervened in this world through judgment that happened at the flood. So why would you doubt that God's word is not going to be true in the future? John MacArthur said this, the bottom line, God built into His original creation the agency by which He would destroy it. He formed the earth out of water and destroyed it with water. Now people deny this story, uh, the story of Noah uh, because it's, it's, they say it's not true. And the reason that mo many people say that is because it's simple, folks. If you cannot believe that story in God's Word, how can you believe any other story in God's Word? That's why it is imperative that we take the book of Genesis as it is written. 
And amazingly, have you thought about this? Every ancient culture in history has their own creation and flood myth. And I say myth because I believe ours is the story, the, the true story of it. But why do you think every ancient culture has a story or a myth about the creation and about the flood? Could it be because it actually literally happened? John MacArthur had a man, uh, I was reading this uh, the other day, had a man come up to him in one of his book signings, which, you know, I'm sure happens a lot. John MacArthur's written a lot of books. And he was at the table at this book signing. A guy came up to him and said, Mr. MacArthur, can I give you a gift? Now, that wasn't unusual. MacArthur said, you know, I, I'm thankful a lot of people do give me gifts, ink pens and paperweights and one thing to another. He said, but this guy, he said, it wasn't the fact the guy wanted to give me a gift that was unusual, it was the gift. He said, this guy handed him a little box, and he said, I opened it up, and it was some type of a tooth. And he said, uh, well, I appreciate it. Thank you. The man said, no, it's not the gift. It's the story that goes with it. He said, that is a shark's tooth. He said, really? He said, yes, it come from where I live. MacArthur thought, well, he lives on the coast somewhere, or Mexico or somewhere like that. He said, really, where do you live? He said, on a mountaintop in the desert of Arizona. Now, you know as well as I do, they found shells, they found shark's tooth and bones of fish and things like that on mountains all around the world. I just say that to say the flood, it literally happened. Now maybe you're saying, well, preacher, that's nice, but what's the point? The point that Peter is making is that God has already intervened in his creation with an act of judgment. He's already done it before. The evidence and the proof is there. The judgment, the flood, that's, that's kind of, I'll put it this way, it's an advance warning. It's a preview of sorts. God destroyed the earth through water. Peter tells us the final judgment's coming, and it's not going to be with water. He said it's going to be with fire. Everything has and will not, everything that people say has and will continue will not continue as it has. That's the point that Peter's trying to make. Remember, in giving this uh, argument and offering this, this debate, this argument, Peter's doing two things. I told you when we started. One, he's repudiating the false teachers, uh, the teaching of the heretics. And the second thing he's doing is he's strengthening the faith of the saved. He is reminding believers that God's word is true. And that when God says something, you can bank on it. It's going to happen. It's as good as happened. Now, secondly, he points to another argument to explain why Jesus has delayed his coming, but why we can still know that he is coming. He points to the very nature of God and how God's nature is beyond ours. Now, I want to make something real clear. While we can grasp something of God's nature, we cannot, <coughs> folks, possibly grasp all of God's nature. You see, and you've heard me say this before, and it's true. The only thing we can understand and know about God is what God has revealed to us in his word. That's it. So what Peter does, he points to God's relationship to time. Now, stay with me on this. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What he does, he, he points to God's eternality in this passage. 
God is not bound by time. God can interact with it, but He's not bound. He's not limited by time is the point Peter's making. God does not experience time exactly the same way that you and I do. Time itself is a part of creation. So what does that mean? That means God created time. Now understand, God knows everything. In time. Let me put it this way. God knows everything, and I guess we would describe it, He knows everything in a timeless motion. I've told you before, God sees from eternity past to eternity future, but He sees it all at one time. Now, I don't know about you, but my little pea brain cannot comprehend that. I cannot grasp that. But that's what we're told about God. Let me explain it to you this way. This, this will ring home, will you? about how we understand time and God understands time. How many of you ever remember when your kids were small or when you were small or when your kids were small? Did they have any concept of time? No, absolutely not. You know, one of the, and, and from my heart, one of the cute and the funny and sometimes aggravating things and aspects of children is their inability to understand time. The fact they don't have any concept of it. I mean, if your child, say the four years old, comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, when are we leaving? When are we going to the store? You say, in an hour. They say, okay. They walk off. What happens? Two minutes later, they come right back. Hey, Mom, Dad, when are we going to the store? In an hour. Okay. They walk off. Two or three minutes later, they come right back. Why? Because they have no concept of time. I was never so glad in all my life when Marcia finally taught each one of our girls that look at the clock. When the big hand is on the 12 and the little hand is on the 2, we'll be leaving. Hannah was so enamored with time, he would, she would sit there and look at it. She's still that way. The kid loves time for some reason. You know, the other day, Marcia and I, I was, I was supposed to be going playing golf, but we had changed the, the day on it, so Marcia was, was keeping the one kids. Nick, your crew. And uh, Jim and Jojo, Jojo the chicken man and Gemma the puppy girl was over at our house. And the reason I say chicken man, Marcia's got, if you've ever been in our kitchen, ceramic chickens all around the top of the kitchen. And she's got a wooden cutout chicken over the entryway coming into the kitchen off the back porch. And it's got a long tail. Why Jojo was enamored with that, I have no idea about how many times I picked him up and let him pull on that chicken's tail and play with that chicken. But Gemma, <coughs> I was uh, doing something on the phone or looking something up, and I was sitting in the kitchen. She'd come in, and, and she calls me Brother Jim. And I, I think it's cute the way she says it. She said, Brother Jim, I want to see puppies. I said, okay, baby, just a minute. We'll go see the puppies. Okay. She took off. It wasn't 30 seconds. She'd come back, Brother Jim, I'll see puppies. Okay, baby, give me just a minute. We'll go see the puppies. She took off. About another 15, 20 seconds. Brother Jim, time to go see the puppies? I said, yes, it is. Let's go see the puppies right now. But you see what I'm getting at? They have no concept of time. They cannot comprehend it. They don't understand it. Well, folks, our understanding of time and our experience in time is not like God's. We're in time. God is above and beyond time. Now, let me make this clear. God has His own calendar. He's aware of the day. He knows what's going on at any given moment in this world. But his delay is not because he has forgotten or lost interest. His delay is purposeful. Look again at verse 9. It's because of patience, Peter says. Actually, you know what? You can read this into it. It's because of God's patience and grace. 
that there's a delay. Don't make a mistake about this. He, he's not delaying because, he, he, because of impotence or apathy. It's not that, that God's powerless so that God doesn't care. No, that's not the case. Jesus is coming back and judgment's coming back. God has delayed it because He is merciful. He is patient and He is gracious. When the last person who is supposed to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, when that happens, guess what? Judgment's coming. Look at Peter, uh, 2 Peter 3.10. Look at verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That means there will be no place to hide. When I say judgment's coming, understand it's going to be perfect, righteous judgment. Nothing's going to be overlooked. No place to hide. Never doubt that fact. Now think about this, and I'm beginning to wrap, <clears throat> wrap it up here because I'm about to lose my voice. I tried to say too much in too short a period of time. Now think about this. If this world is going to burn up and pass away with a roar, then let me ask you something. What should we be building our lives on? I mean, I don't think it should be something that's not going to last, something that's going to fade away and burn away with a roar. John, in the first, uh, his first letter in 1 John, he said something similar. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. He said, do not, <clears throat> do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So I'm going to say again, folks, Jesus is coming back. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day. Now, let me be honest with you, and let me be straightforward with you. We shouldn't waste our time trying to calculate the day or planning out the calendar or using an equation to figure out what day He's coming. Instead, we ought to be found dressed in readiness. What I mean by that is we ought to be ready at all times. We ought to be looking at all times. Now, you say, you're talking about Jesus coming back and judgment, or you're talking about the rapture, you're talking about Jesus coming back. I'm talking about the whole ball of wax. I'm talking about when it all begins to count down. I believe we're close, folks. The question for all of us is, how will, be, will we be found? I mean, how do we want Him to find us when He comes for us? If you're a Christian, how do you want to be found? Look at verse 11. I believe that's why Peter says this. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? You know what? That raises a pretty good question in that verse right there. And the question is, do we live for Jesus or do we live for this world? I told you we ought to be living to be ready. Let me tell you, the only way you're going to be ready is you better be living for Jesus. That's the only way you're ready. And you better not make any mistake about it. I'm going to tell you one more time. Jesus is coming and judgment's coming. Jesus is coming for the saved. Judgment's coming for the lost. So with all the stuff in the world going on today, the rioting, the, the uh, uh, BL Black Lives Matter movement, uh, uh, all that stuff, the socialism that seems to be creeping or not creeping, it's like a bulldozer now coming into our society. All these things, people are saying, well, that means Jesus is coming again. Friend, just because all these things are happening don't mean that you finally need to recognize that Jesus is coming again. You better always recognize that. 
That's part of being ready. Now, do I believe these signs point to his uh, imminent return? I'm not going to prophesy on that. There's always going to be these things that's going on in the world around us today. What we need to do is be ready for the king to come. Focus on Jesus coming again. And we need to grasp in our hearts, Christian, that Jesus is coming. That means judgment's coming. Jesus is coming for you and me. Judgment's coming for the rest of the world. We need to make the most of the time we have right now and sharing the gospel with the lost world. So they understand that, hey, I'm not asking you to give your life to Jesus Christ so you can have a great life, so you can have a, uh, you know, your best life now. I'm telling you, you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ because judgment's coming. And one day you're going to stand before him and give an account of your life that's been lived without Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Father, I pray for those present tonight who need to make a decision. They need to decide what they're going to build their life on. Either the things of this world that are going to burn up and, and fade away or on Jesus Christ, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then, Father, I pray for those here who have had the attitude of being careless, being flippant about the gospel. We would understand that we are to be about your business while we're in this world. We're to be living for you. We're to be building our life upon you and upon your word. And we are to be your disciples. Father, I pray that we'd be burdened for that. Because again, I do believe time is short. You have called us for a specific purpose. And may we fulfill that purpose as a church. May we be light in a dark world. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand, folks. We'll sing a hymn.